It was the first century BC, and a devastating drought threatened to destroy a generation, the generation before Jesus. The last of the Jewish prophets had died off nearly four centuries before. Miracles were such a distant memory that they seemed like a false memory. God was nowhere to be heard. But there was one man, an eccentric sage, who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, who dared to pray anyway. His name was Hani. And even if the people could no longer hear God, he believed that God could still hear them. When rain is plentiful, it's an afterthought. During a drought, it's the only thought. And Hani was their only hope. Famous for his ability to pray for rain, it was on this day, the day, that Hani would earn his moniker. With a six-foot staff in hand, this is only five feet, six-foot staff in hand, Hani began to turn like a math compass. He took his staff and drew a circle in the sand. 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. And as the crowd looked on, after what seemed like hours, but it had only been seconds, Hani stood inside the circle that he had drawn. He dropped to his knees. I'm not going to do that today. I might not get back up. Dropped to his knees and raised his hands to heaven with the authority of the prophet like Elijah, who called down fire from heaven. Hani called down rain. Lord of the universe! I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. The word sent a shudder down the spine of all who were within earshot that day. It wasn't just the volume of his voice, it was the authority of his tone, not a hint of doubt. This prayer didn't originate in the vocal cords. Like water from an artesian well, the words flowed from the depth of his soul. His prayer was resolute yet humble, confident yet meek, expectant yet unassuming. And then it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. An audible gasp swept across the thousands of congregants who had encircled Hani. Every head turned heavenward as the first raindrops parachuted from the sky, but Hani's head remained bowed. The people rejoiced over every drop, but, but Hani wasn't satisfied with a sprinkle. Still kneeling within the circle, Hani lifted his voice over the sounds of celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than an egg in size. It rained so heavily and so steadily that people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. Hani stayed and prayed inside his protracted circle. Once more, he refined his bold request. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain of thy favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, 
Like a well-proportioned sun shower on a hot and humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly and peacefully. Each raindrop was a tangible token of God's grace. And they didn't just soak the skin, they soaked the spirit with faith. It would be forever remembered as the day. The day thunderclaps applauded the Almighty. The day puddle jumping became an act of praise. The day the legend of the circle maker was born. It had been difficult to believe the day before the day. The day after the day, it was impossible not to believe. Hani was celebrated like a hometown hero by the people whose lives he had saved, but some within the Sanhedrin called the circle maker into question. A faction believed that drawing a circle and demanding rain dishonored God. Maybe it was those same members of the Sanhedrin who would criticize Jesus for healing a man's withered arm on the Sabbath a generation later. They threatened Hani with excommunication, but because the miracle could not be repudiated, Hani was ultimately honored for his act of prayerful bravado. The prayer that saved a generation was deemed one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. The circle he drew on the sand became a sacred symbol. And the legend of Hani, the circle maker, stands forever as a testament to the power of a single prayer to change the course of history. The earth has circled the sun more than 2,000 times since the day Hani drew his circle in the sand, but God is still looking for circle makers. And the timeless truth secreted within the ancient legend is as true now as it was then. Bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He's offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. Why? Because they don't require divine intervention. But ask God to part the Red Sea or make the sun stand still or float an iron axe head, and God is moved to omnipotent action. There's nothing God loves more than keeping his promises, answering prayers, performing miracles, and, and fulfilling dreams. That is who he is. That is what he does. And the bigger the circle we draw, the better, because God gets more glory. The greatest moments in life are the miraculous moments when human impotence and divine omnipotence intersect. And they intersect when we draw a circle around the impossible situations in our lives and invite God to intervene. God is ready and waiting. So while I have no idea what circumstances you find yourself in, I'm confident that you are only one prayer away from a dream fulfilled, a promise kept, or a miracle performed. It's absolutely imperative at the outset that you come to terms with this simple yet life-changing truth, God is for you. If you don't believe that, then you'll pray timid prayers. If you do believe it, then you'll pray big, audacious prayers. And one way or the other, your small, timid prayers or big, audacious prayers will change the trajectory of your life and turn you into two totally different people. Prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of your spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. As a church, we are devoted to prayer. We want to be a church that is devoted to the same things the early church was devoted to. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. And we want to be devoted to those same things. So we're working hard as a church to, 
to be devoted to prayer. And prayer is one of the areas I think we can grow in. We have a lot of room to grow when it comes to prayer. I have a lot of room to grow personally when it comes to prayer. And I'm looking forward to this season of prayer together as a church where we can grow together and start drawing circles around some of the things that God has in mind for us. Today we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Joshua 6. If you don't, you can pull out your phone, and we'll have the, the text for, on, you, on the screen for you. But to set the stage, I actually want to play a song. I was in a choir, the Indiana Wesleyan University Chorale, back in the late 90s, and we traveled around to a lot of larger churches in the Midwest and, and gave concerts. And one of the songs that we sang and recorded one year was the song called Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. And it kind of helps tell the story a little bit to get us started. So let's listen to that. Hopefully. And crank it up when you get it. Crank it way up. Here we go. Josh fit the battle of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. 
March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark carried around the city, circling at once, and the army returned to camp and spent the night. They got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, I've got a picture of the wall that I'd like for you to see. This is, this is it's kind of a low-resolution picture, but it was actually two walls that surrounded Jericho. And it was, uh, the first wall in the front was 10, 12, maybe 15 feet high. And you can kind of see the little soldiers there in the, in the bottom corner. It's not very good. But, um, and, then, and then they had this big berm embankment that rose. And then they had the, another wall at the top of that that also rose 12 or 15 feet. So the second wall was nearly 50 feet tall, where the first wall was 12 to 15 feet tall. So leave that picture up there for a second. And I'm going to ask for your assistance to help recreate this story a little bit. It's kind of kind of works because it was the priests who blew the horn. This is my trombone from my high school days. I haven't played much lately. All right, so, um, so basically what would happen is you had, you had the guard out in front, then you had the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a holy box that, that carried all of the things that kind of represented early Israel, the, the Aaron's rod that budded and the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, manna and, and some, a bunch of other things were in there, the kind of historical record of, of what God did early on. So the first day, and kids, you're welcome to join me if you want. You want to come walk with me, Harper? We're going to walk circles. Anyone want to walk with me? All right, so, so the, the priests would walk around the building, and they'd just kind of... Let's see if, anyone, if I can play this, if anyone recognizes it. Okay. 
something like that. Anyone know that song? That's Ohio State fight song, yeah. So. And so the first day, they go around and do that. And then as soon as they make their trip all the way around Jericho, they go back to camp. Day two. Something like that. And so day two, this is all we have really written out in the, in the story is two days of the priests going around. And they're, they're playing. They're not playing anything. They're kind of playing whatever song or army song they played. I don't know what it was. I can't play, make this thing sound like a ram's horn. So they go do that day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Now, on day seven, they walk around. One time, playing that all the way around. Imagine yourself in Jericho. The, the, the people of Jericho were already afraid of the Israelites because they had heard about all the things that God had done. So the city was barred up because they were worried about what, what might happen to them when the Israelites come. And then for day one, the Israelites just come and walk around the city, and you can hear them walking around and playing their horns around the wall. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Then on day seven, they come and, and they do the same thing they've done the other days, except they're doing it again. And then they go around the sixth time. And so they come around the sixth time. They've been playing this thing the whole time. It's, it's reasonable for me to assume that they were playing the Buckeyes fight song. I mean, it is sacred. All right. And then... When they come around the seventh time, the, the loud blast was a long blast. So what would happen would be, would have, you, it might have been something like this. And when, when they heard the loud, long blast, everyone was supposed to shout. So everyone, I'm going to ask you, if you will, when I play the long, loud blast, shout. And we'll see if we can make the walls fall down. All right, here we go. <laughs> Nothing happened. <laughs> Fortia. They circled the camp, circled the camp, circled the camp. A lot of people have tried to say, well, well maybe there's something that happened, you know, that, that happened, you know, with physics. And, and the way that they shouted and the sound, you know, just, you know, reverberated. And there are some frequencies that can break glass. But I don't think it's likely that, that a simple shout would have the ability to tear, tear down two walls that total 50 feet in height. 
This was something God had done and then in the end ends up delivering Jericho into their hands. And this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the conquest of the promised land. This is the start of their journey into the promised land. And from here on they go and God continues to do miraculous things where the people of Israel do not have to fight. God fights for them. This is the Old Testament where the phrase comes, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not, the, ba- the, the battle was not for the Israelites to fight. God was fighting the battle on their behalf. After seven days of circling Jericho, God delivered on a 400-year-old promise to give the people of Israel the promised land. We've said that, that God is always faithful. God can never not keep his promises. It's impossible once God makes a promise for him to not keep that promise because it's not a part of his character. He has to be consistent with who he is. And when he makes a promise, he will keep it. Even though it may seem like it's been a long time, 400 years was a long time, more than 400 years. They were in slavery for 430 years. And over this period, I'm sure people had lost hope that God would actually fulfill the promise and give the people of Israel the promised land. And yet, here on the first foyer into the promised land, all they have to do is go in and circle Jericho seven times and shout, and the walls come and tumbling down. What is your Jericho? What is the thing in your life that, that, that you've been circling, or, or the thing that maybe you haven't been circling, and you need to start praying circles around? You need to start coming around this thing in your life from all angles and circling it with prayer. What, what is the thing in your life that needs to, to be circled in prayer? What promises are you praying circles around? Fast forward a thousand years to Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho, the site where this thing had happened a thousand years before, and as they're leaving and as they're going outside of town, there are some, well, did we hear? Did we hear? Oh, yeah, two blind men sitting by the side of the road. They're crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus calls them and says, what do you want me to do for you? Really, Jesus? Don't you know what they want? Don't you know what they need? I mean, why, why ask the question, what do you want me to do for you? Why do you think Jesus might have said, make them, made them say verbally out loud, we want our sight? They answered the Lord, we want our sight. And then Jesus heals them. 
I have a whole lot of theories about, about this. You know, we, we pray in our heads all the time. There's nothing wrong with praying in your head. But I think there is something about praying out loud to God. I grew up in the Wesleyan Church, which is not Baptist. Uh, it's Arminian. Baptists tend to be Calvinistic in theology. I grew up Arminian, and I'm in the middle now. I, I just try to preach what the Bible teaches. That's my, my whole goal. And so... Um, but we grew up, and, and our prayer times growing up at the church when the pastor would pray, just at the, beginning, at the beginning of the service, the pastor would pray before the sermon, and we had kneeling rails at the front of the church, and, and people would come up and kneel at the rails in front of the church, and, and you would have thought you were in a charismatic church because everyone would just start praying out loud at the same time while the pastor prayed. People would be praying, praying boldly out loud together, and, and, and sometimes there would be some crying and even some wailing, and it took us all by surprise. This one lady, Teresa was her name. I don't know if she watches. We are friends on Facebook. Hi, Teresa. We have the same birthday, if you are watching this. But she would, I don't know, she would just kind of get worked up about something, and she'd just start wailing. I mean, and, and, and it would just kind of rise above all of the prayers. I mean, People would be praying, Heavenly Father, we ask you in Jesus' name and the power of the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead to bring our son out. And they'd just kind of be praying these things and people would be, and then Teresa would just kind of be there. And, and, and it's just, just go on and on and just, and, and, and you didn't know whether to keep praying to help cover up the sound or if that was like God's clue to wrap things up and move on to the sermon. I'm not sure, but... I'm sorry, I'm making a lot of loud sounds this morning. I apologize, but... Jesus did make the men say out loud to him, we want our sight. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Give us the ability to see again. What if Jesus asks you this question today? What do you want me to do for you? I want to be clear. I, I, I never want to present or portray God as some kind of a genie in the bottle. God does not exist to give us our wishes. God does not exist to grant us our demands. And, and our faith should never be dependent on, on God's ability to give us what we want. And that's, I think, an unfortunate thing that has happened in modern Christianity where, where a lot of Christians their faith in, on whether God exists and whether God loves them and whether God is for them depends on God's ability to give them what they ask for in prayer. Now, I'm 41 years old. I forgot a couple weeks ago when I said I'm in my 40s. I actually couldn't remember if I was 41 or 42 or 40, so I said my 40s. But I remembered since then, and I'm 41. And I'm old enough to know that there are a lot of things in life that I have prayed for that would not have been for my best had God given to me. There are a lot of things that I have prayed for that I have circled in prayer over the years that I'm convinced God gave to me even though they weren't maybe what he really wanted for me most in that moment. God does not exist for, for our pleasure. God does not exist so that we can get what we want and get the life that we want out of him. But when we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
When our lives are pointed towards the center like we talked about a few weeks ago, not, not sitting in the center oriented outwards and hoping that God will follow us wherever we go, but when we're walking humbly with God and our lives are oriented towards the center, Christ as the center of everything we do, when we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and letting all other things vanish off as a mist in the background... When we've allowed God to transform our hearts, when he's given us a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of the heart of stone, and a heart that desires his kingdom and his righteousness, a heart that desires his will to be done and his ways to happen in, the, in our life and in our world, then scripture actually is clear that God wants to bless us. God is for us, not against us. He, he wants to bless his children. He created the whole creation in the beginning to bless us, to give us something to enjoy before we rebelled against him. In fact, the word bless is used more than 350 times in the Old Testament. It was a major, major theme of the people of Israel. God wants to bless us. But he wants to bless us in the way that's going to draw us closer to him and bring him glory and reach people for his kingdom. The answer to that question, what do you want me to do for you today, changes over time. When you're in a different season of life, you know, when you're, when you're young, when you're in school, you're... you're your answer to that question, what do you want me to do for you, might, might be different from what it's going to be when you're grown up and you're married and you have kids. And when Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you, and, you, and you're older and your kids have left the house and you're in a different phase of life, the answer to that question is going to be different still. And when you're approaching the end of your years and Jesus asks you this question, what do you want me to do for you, your, question, your answer is still going to be different. So should we just never ask? I mean, should we never answer the question and ask God to do things for us and give things to us and, and, and help us in this way or that way? I mean, things are always changing. How do we know what to ask for? Well, why not just start answering the question? Why not just start drawing a circle around whatever it is today? that you feel God wants for you or you feel like you need God to move in your life and just start drawing a circle around it. And maybe for now, if you're, you're young and you're in school, you draw a circle around school and you just circle it in prayer and you just spend a lot of time focusing on that. God, I need you to help me through school. God, help me to be a witness for you at school. Help me to, to be a testimony, a testament to your great name while I'm at school. I pray, God, that you would give me relationships with people who are hungry and thirsty for you that, that would know, want to know you as a result of, of me knowing them. And you just pray, God, help me to glorify you in all the things that I do. Help me to glorify you with the diligence that I use towards my schoolwork and towards, you know, towards my, my school career and you just start drawing circles and circles and circles and circles and you pray and pray and pray around it. And then as you grow up and maybe you're about to get married and, and you, you're praying for your spouse, you know, God, I pray that you would lead me to the spouse that you have for me, one who's going to honor you and everything that they do, one who's going to help me live my life for you and you pray circles around that. And then you get married and you pray for your marriage and you pray for your kids. Heavenly Father, we... 
We ask that you help us to, to raise kids who honor you and who live according to your name and according to your word. And then you grow up and you have grandkids and you have a career and you have a job and you're out there in the secular world with a lot of people who don't believe in God. You pray, God, it's hard to believe in you when I'm surrounded by people who don't believe in you. God, it's hard to be a witness for you when I'm surrounded by people who despise you. I pray, Father, help me to shine like a light. Use my good deeds to testify and bring glory to your name. And you start praying and drawing circles and you draw circles around your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your house and your town and your city and your church and all of these things. And just start waiting for God to answer prayers. Here's one challenge. You're free to do this or not do this. I'm not pressuring you one way or another. Several of us in the church are doing this as we go through this series and through this journey. We're keeping a journal. One of the things that, that you can do when you journal your prayers is it helps you focus. And you, you might say, I'm not a journaler, and I'll tell you I was never a journaler until I started journaling. Just like anything else, takes time and effort, right? I mean, like, you have to put some time and effort into it. You were never good at riding a bike until you worked at riding a bike, and we weren't good at a lot of things until we started doing it. But when you're praying and you're journaling, it really helps you focus your prayers, but that's not the good thing. When you're journaling your prayers, you have a written record of what you've prayed for. You have a written record of the, of the things that you've come before, and and I've heard many people about who do prayer journals regularly and consistently. You know, they pray, and even sometimes their prayer journals are, are tear-stained over the things that they've prayed for and, and prayed and prayed and prayed for those things. But when you have a written record of it, then you can go back in time. And you can start circling again those things and pray for them again if they have not been answered, and you can highlight them if they have been answered. And I would encourage you, if you have a journal, to to not only track those things, but when God answers a prayer, go to the end of the journal and start keeping a list of all the things that, that God has done, all the, all the prayers that he has answered. And then, once you have a few of those things, share them with, with us and share them with others and say, I've been praying for this for years and God answered this prayer. I just prayed this for the first time and God answered the prayer already. And, and you just start keeping this list. And, and what happens when, when we start to hear that prayers are answered is not only our faith grow, but the faith of the entire community starts to grow as we share an answered prayer. Much like when Hani took his staff and he drew that circle around himself and he prayed for rain inside that circle and the people were standing there watching and they saw God answer his prayer and then he prayed again and they saw God answer his prayer and then he prayed again and, and they saw God answer his prayer. The faith of the people was built up. The day before Hani prayed this prayer, it's the, the story goes that it was hard for people to believe in God anymore. They had lost faith in God. The day after... It was hard not to believe. When we share these stories with one another, it builds the faith of our whole body. For many years, I've, I've had a dream that, uh, 
that something would happen here in this community. There, there are some rough parts of our community. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but there are some, there are some difficult parts of the Hazeldale community. There are some parts of this community that, uh, that, that are challenging to know how to minister to and to care for. And standing in the center of this community is, is, a, is a building that, that used to represent almost all of the unseen things that you did not want in your community happening. It's the Value Motel. For years, I prayed that God would give us the Value Motel to use for ministry and building the kingdom as opposed to being used for the abominable activities that would happen there at night. In late 2019 and in early 2020, I would literally drive over there on some days, and not every day, but not even every week, but I would drive over there and and I would park over in the, I don't, there's a little kind of strip mall there with like a Greek restaurant and some other restaurants. And I'd park there and, and I would just walk circles around that whole property and go back through the apartments and come around the front and go all the way down to 78th Street and walk over to Highway 99 and go all the way back up to where I parked and walk circles around. And I would walk seven circles around that building while I was praying. And I was praying, God, God, I pray that you would give us this this space, this land to be used for, for ministry and not for the things it's being used for now. I asked God to give us, meaning us, 6A Church, the property and to stop the horrific things that had happened there over the years. Well, over the past six months or so, I don't know if you've noticed, but See, there were some hang-ups to being able to even purchase that property if you wanted to purchase it. The guy that owns it owns a lot of the land here in Hazeldale, and he owns a lot of the property on Highway 99, and he and his daughter have no interest in selling off any of it. A lot of people had tried to buy it because it's a prime, prime piece of real estate sitting there on the corner of the freeway and on a, on a busy intersection. A lot of people wanted to turn it around knowing what had happened there, but no one had been able to do it. But a guy by the name of James Casper, who was a former alcoholic and drug addict and has been clean, clean and sober for 20 or 30 years, can't remember exactly, who's had a ministry to alcoholics across the county, especially over on the east side of town, he has a place over there where he runs three or four AA meetings a day himself. Well, the, the place that he used over on the east side of town was owned by the same guy that owns the Value Motel, and he was such a good, a good tenant to this man over on the east side of town that, that the owner of the Value Motel, whenever he was approached by James, was willing to let him take the hotel, rework it, bring it up to code, do all the things, and turn it into an Oxford-style living situation for recovering addicts. And in a few weeks to months, it will open up for the first time, and its rooms will be filled of people who are going on the right track, not going on the wrong track. I'm not the only person that has prayed for God to turn that building into something else. I know many pastors in the area have been praying the same prayer. The pastor, uh, pastor Peter Schrader down at uh, City Harvest Church has been praying for that, and the pastors we met with have all prayed that prayer as well. I know pastors have been praying for that place to be redeemed for decades, and God has answered that prayer. Now, I'm still praying for him to give us a strategic relationship there or more, and 
I'm going to keep praying that prayer until it either happens or God says no. But I'd like to challenge us this morning as we close to pick a a time each day to pray. You might want to pick 714. A lot of of times people go, churches going through this series, they all pray together at 714 a.m. and they pray the prayer of, uh, I think, 2 Chronicles 714, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will I forgive their sins and will heal heal their land. And a lot of people pray that prayer at 7.14 a.m. every morning, and you might want to start that. But I'd, I'd encourage you to pick a time each day and start to build the habit of praying every day at that time. I would encourage you to journal your prayers and keep track of what you pray for so that you can go back to them over time. And when God answers prayer, highlight it and write it down at the end of your journal. And I'd encourage you to start drawing circles around your life and, and how God wants to use you in your life to build the kingdom in your community. Pray for for your family and pray circles around your family and pray circles around your neighborhood for the people who are lost in your neighborhood who need to know Christ, that God would start to open doors for you to build relationships with them and lead them into the kingdom. Pray circles around your church and and that God would not only keep the doors of the church open like many of us prayed for for last year, but that God would advance the mission of the kingdom through 6-8 Church and bring the lost of this community into the kingdom of God and baptize them right here in this room like we talked about last week. Pray circles around your friends and your coworkers, around your career and your job. Pray circles around your city. Pray circles around our state and our nation. Pray specific prayers and just see if God might answer them. What is your Jericho? What do you want God to do for you? I want to close with this one short little story. It's actually how he ends the book, The Circle Maker. And he started off, draw the circle with this story. He never received a formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. He was born in a gypsy tent, yet he was summoned to the White House to meet two presidents. Born in the Epping Forest outside of London in 1860, Rodney Gypsy Smith crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions. Few evangelists have preached with more passion. His secret? Private prayer. More powerful than his preaching was his praying. Gypsy's secret was revealed to a delegation of revival seekers who asked him how God could use them, just as he was using Gypsy. Without hesitation, Gypsy said, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. My friend Michael Hall told me this story after I had already written The Circle Maker. The cover of the book, complete with chalk circle, had already been designed. Honestly, I wasn't sold on the cover design before I heard the story about Gypsy Smith. And after I heard the story, I felt like the cover was both historic and prophetic. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then the chalk circle on the cover is worth a thousand prayers. May it inspire you to remind you to draw a prayer circle. That is where every great movement of God begins. May it begin with you and in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers, this unique opportunity to be able to communicate with the God of the universe, that, that we have an eternal God who hears our prayers, that you are there, not only are you not silent, but you are not just a wall that our prayers fall against and hopefully something in the universe works to advance our dreams and our ambitions, but you are our heavenly Father there listening to us as we pray. And that when we pray prayers that are inspired by your kingdom's agenda, you want to move on our behalf. I pray, Father, as a church, that we would not only come together through prayer and be united through prayer, that we would not just become a, a church that deeply prays for one another, for the community, and for the kingdom, but I pray, Father, that you would use this church to advance the kingdom in ways that we never expected. That you would use us to reach the lost. I pray, Father, that you would use us to reach some of the most lost people in our community. I pray that you would give us inroads into some of the, some of the darkest corners of Hazeldale. And I pray, Father, that you would use the light of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ to shine brightly into the darkness, the hope of the resurrection and that you would use us to lead people out of that darkness, the darkness that has their soul in bondage, the darkness for which Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the ransom to set them free from, and that you would use that light to draw people out of that darkness and into the resurrection light of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, not only for the most, the most lost, but for the lost in our neighborhoods, the lost in our workplaces, the lost in our families. And I pray, Father, that you would use us to draw them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.